today is the fourth anniversary of the Corey Truax Show. Four years of doing this. And I'm not even going to be mad at you for forgetting. What I'm going to do is give you a great conversation with Nathan McDowell on today's Corey Truax Show. Welcome into the four-year anniversary edition of the Corey Truax Show. Somehow I have made it through four years, and Gary Miller, the producer and station manager at Christian Talk 660, now his radio, 92.9 FM, has not kicked me off the air yet. So it's been quite the success. Thank you for everybody who has been listening and for the larger number than you that I ever expected uh, listening to the podcast. I'm grateful for it. And for those listening live on his radio talk, 92.9, also 91.9, by the way, on Saturday morning at 8.05. I'm glad you're here. Among many other things, I'm the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets on Sunday mornings at 10.30 in Greenville, South Carolina. Any time you're in the area, you are invited. I'm also the host of South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax. It is a podcast of the Palmetto Family Council. You can find that podcast wherever you find podcasts. On the show today... This special edition, this fourth anniversary, I thought it would be good to have one of our patented conversations on the show where I talk to someone who doesn't agree with me. I know you all like that because uh, sometimes it's good for me to be humbled. And so that's what we're going to do today. And for that, we're going to welcome back Mr. Nathan McDowell. Hi there, sir. Great to be back. I'm glad you are here. I want to start with this. Um, you are not the only one who gave me feedback on the Bachelorette episode I did. I heard from quite a few people on my Bachelorette episode. And so I'm going to quickly uh, restate my take, and I wanted to get your response to my take. My, my case was this. The facts of the case were a woman who claimed to be a believer and a guy who claimed to be a believer were having a conversation about being in a relationship, and he was trying to verify that they had the same sexual ethic before she went off with a bunch of other dudes. He was called insecure, and he was called controlling, I think was the other big theme I heard on the internet. And so I laid out that uh, he had every good reason to ask that question because that's a question of compatibility and that her uh, behavior indicates that her profession of faith is not genuine. That was my general take. What was your reaction? Yeah. So I'm going to answer this in the nerdiest way possible. (laughs) Talk about some moral relativism first. Okay. For me, I think that even if you recognize that there's objective morality and you believe that, you also have to recognize that we move in a space where moral convictions of different people are widely varying. And a lot of people think they have the correct and objective take on morality. And to me, the conclusion of that is we can't judge people according to our own moral suppositions in certain situations. So, for example, in having a conversation with me, you don't usually talk to me as though I'm complicit in murdering millions of babies a year, or 600,000 now. But... You could if you were judging me by your own moral code. And in the same token, if I were judging you by some of your opinions on welfare, I could say that you've thrust a lot of people into poverty, and I can't really judge you according to that. Got it. So applying that to The Bachelorette, especially in a world where there's so many different notions of what a relationship is, I think the best way to view it is a contract between two people about the rules that they're going to set out. And so in that spirit, I think you have like an open and honest conversation where it's like, this is my perspective on it. What is yours? And my main issue with that interaction was Luke P., the guy in question, approached it very aggressively and was like, basically, if you've done these things, I'm going to leave. Did did it came across to me? And listen, I've never watched the episode of the show. Right, yeah. So I could be, I I will stand corrected if I'm wrong. His uh, attitude was not if you've done, his attitude is if you're planning to. 
if this is what you're going to do. Is that am I misunderstanding that? Well, I think I think it was either or both. Yeah, yeah. If you okay. had sex with him, or if you're gonna have sex with him, then I'm leaving. Is that not a fair position for him to have? I think he could have presented it a little bit in more of a kind way. First off, but okay. second off, I would say this: I think that my issue with it is he's on the show, and in that show, he knows that she's going to be and has been emotionally intimate already okay. with the other guys. So. Why is the line physical intimacy? From my perspective, it seems as though that's upholding in some ways her body as the most important thing when I would argue that emotional intimacy is more important than physical intimacy. I will say you've made the best argument I've heard, but I will also go back to this. Um, you, you open to good with moral relativism. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, that those two people come from different moral universes, and therefore this is uh, a conversation that you got to have, but maybe he should have it less aggressively, and his um, presumption, maybe? His presumption of his own worldview on her. My big issue is because I come from that Christian worldview, and I didn't care until she started going out on Twitter saying that I do all these things and Jesus still loves me. My problem was primarily, theolo primarily theological, that I wanted to correct the language of... The Christian faith is not do whatever you want. That's not what the Christian faith is. So that was my bigger issue, is that they should be able to agree upon the Christian worldview if they're both going to wear the Jesus label. Does that make sense? That does make sense to me. I think also we have to recognize that people use Christianity as a term in a lot of different ways. And I do think it means different things to different people. And maybe we should say there should be an objective definition of what it means. But I don't think we can say, well, now that she's used the label of Christian, she has uh, bought into all these moral presuppositions that I say goes along with Christianity. Okay. So that's where I, w the definition of Christian then has to be defined before we can get, before those two can have their conversation. Uh, because this is one of the, actually the beauties of Christian faith is what we are supposed to say is we all defer to scripture. And so then we can get into, well, I, I, uh, I interpret Scripture differently than you do. Uh, but either way, we should have both of them going to, uh, we're, there's a referee in our conversation. The referee is going to be Scripture. Not my opinion or yours, but it's going to be that Scripture. And otherwise I wouldn't have cared. Because I don't care when, I mean I care because they're people, but I don't care when pagans do pagan things. Pagans are going to pagan. That's how that works. It's when Christians or people wearing the label make the faith look bad, and I think she did. I don't know if he did. I, I don't watch the rest of the show. I had a bunch of people message me to tell me how much of a jerk he's been all season. I was like, well, I didn't know. So maybe <laughs> right. he's a jerk too. I'm just saying that she did the wrong thing there from specifically Christian perspective. Right. That's my last thought. Any other thoughts on that? I, the last thing would be, and this is a point that uh, Hannah, the Bachelorette, made that I thought was good, is that he was very prideful and a jerk throughout the show. So, and okay. from my perspective, I do think the Christian community focuses more on these distinguishing sins that are easy to point out, like sexual immorality, cussing, getting drunk, whatever, which are bad, but tends to not condemn sins like pride and lack of compassion as much, which in my opinion are worse, just more intangible, so it's difficult to weigh. Okay, so I would respond, Let's because uh, I, have, I have a varied listenership. Um, I have actually a guy coming on next week who is not just secular, he's antagonistic uh, in its... And he listens, and I'm, I'm grateful. Thanks, man, out there for <laughs> listening. Christians are hypocritical, man. I, I, I'm in the family. I can say it. I don't mind saying that I am and that we are, as a group, largely hypocritical. 
our hypocrisy doesn't mean our standard is the wrong one. It just means we suck at being Christians. Oh, Gary Miller, I'm sorry if I'm not allowed to say that on the air. You can just like blank that word out if I can't say that word. Um, and so I, I get her point. I'm not even thinking she's wrong. Yeah, you can be right. Yeah, we don't take other sins seriously enough. Well, our hypocrisy doesn't justify you. You still have an issue, even if we all have one too. That's why I would give uh, Hannah. Okay, so any other thoughts on The Bachelor? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I want to get into some politics with you because that's where I believe we connect. Maybe first, first thing we connected on is we both, I used to be a political junkie. Would you consider yourself a political junkie? Yeah. You're there. Gotcha. <laughs> um, for being on my political left, we can agree on that. You're to my left. Why is, from your perspective, why is Elizabeth Warren gaining in Bernie Sanders, who I think has all the same ideas, he is falling apart. What's happening there? Well, I think a big part of it is branding. And I personally find it very frustrating as someone who is pretty leftist. I would say a nudge more to the left than a moderate yeah. liberal. Um, frustrating that it's become trendy for Democrats to brand themselves as socialist. Because realistically, most Democrats are not socialist. I wouldn't categorize AOC as a socialist because I mean a socialist wants the government to own the means, means of production, of production. Yeah. and Bernie Sanders doesn't want to socialize the automotive industry he doesn't want to socialize the tech sector he doesn't want the government to take over most businesses he's for socializing a couple more things but is mostly capitalist uh, as much as the people who claim to be capitalist okay so Elizabeth Warren is saying it better than he's saying it? Because he's being too aggressive? Well, I, she's branded herself as the savior of capitalism, which I think was very smart. Because huh. essentially, And I also think more accurate. She said that I am about making the capitalistic system work for the common man, whereas now, when, you know, they slice it all these different ways, one of them is the three richest people in the world on 50% of the yeah. wealth or over the bottom 50% or whatever, yeah. but that the capitalistic system has exacerbated income inequality and it needs to be corrected, but not that we need to be socialist. D during the first debate, Bernie Sanders had this moment. Maybe I am over, I'm overemphasizing its significance. So I wonder your opinion. He's asked by a debate moderator how he's going to do Medicare for all. And his answer is, well, we're going to do medic. We're going to do Medicare for all. Well, how, like, how are you going to do it? And his response is, well, there's going to be a movement. A movement of the country is going to rise up and do it. And so it, it starts to sound like the inanity of false political promises that it's, it sounds like pie in the sky. It doesn't sound realistic. That's, to me, why he started falling apart is people are starting to recognize none of that stuff is real, man. Is it, am I? In, you think I'm on anything there? No, yeah, and I think that's the second big component of it is Warren is arguably the most policy-oriented, detailed, analytical candidate that's up there right now, and so I think that makes a lot of these very leftist ideas seem much more grounded and practical, whereas with Bernie already labeling himself as a socialist, they can seem much more pie in the sky. Is she not doing the... What is she saying? I have a plan for that? That's yeah, her, I have that's, a plan for that. That's yeah. her thing right now. Um, so it's like where I where I sit, I I actually do think she's the smart version of Bernie Sanders. I don't find Bernie Sanders to be all that bright. No, um, yeah. I, but I think I mean she was Harvard educated. She, didn't she teach at Harvard Law? Yes, she, she did. Yeah, she taught Ben Shapiro. By the way, small mm, world. I didn't know ben that. Shapiro was wow. in a class under under Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> um, and so I don't like the ideas because I don't. I'm I'm not a statist. I'm I've, I'm a I'm a capitalist. 
she was the one that originally said uh, before Barack Obama ever said, "You didn't build that." Do you remember that? You're you're a kid. No, in I tw- wasn't. I wasn't into politics Dude, then. In 2012, <laughs> how young were you in 2012? 2012 would be seven years ago. I would have been 14. Good gosh, so. <laughs> there was a big controversy when he was running against Mitt Romney, where right. he said, "You've got a business. You know, you've made some money. You didn't build that." And his idea mm. was the system around you is what allowed you to do it. Mm. Before he ever said that, he was really quoting Elizabeth Warren. She was at a town hall thing saying. Um, you built a business, you made some money. Well, that's not yours because uh, the fire department protecting it there and the cops that are protecting you from marauders. The You have to use the roads that we all built. And so we all built that together. And so her fundamental idea of property and earnings, I don't like those. I, I don't identify with those ideas at all. Right. Do you? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, largely. I wouldn't okay. say I agree with everything, but Warren is my favorite candidate right now. Is she? Could we agree to this statement? Okay. Let's say that the further left presuppositions are correct. Would you agree that she would be the best one to implement them of the slate of candidates we have? If you wanted to get left-wing things done? Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) If you wanted to get those left-wing things done. Your um, uh, being drawn to her surprises me, and so when we come back... I'm going to ask you more about the state of the Democratic race because you're much more invested invested in it than I am. We'll do that when we come back for the rest of the Corey Act show. We are sitting down with Mr. Nathan McDowell. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the fourth anniversary episode of the Corey Act Show on his radio talk, 92.9 FM, or wherever you listen. I am grateful wherever you do. If it's on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you listen, thank you for doing so. If you would be so kind as to share the show on social media, here's a weird thing to me, guys. I think you're ashamed of me. It's hurting my feelings, because here's why. I know a lot of you are listening, but only like seven of you shared on Facebook. So I'm like your secret addiction, and you don't want to, you don't want to tell anybody, and it hurts my feelings. I'm just kidding, guys, for real. But you could just go, uh, just tell somebody that you're listening to the show. You don't have to be ashamed of me, uh, and then uh, we'll continue to grow it. We're talking today with Mr. Nathan McDowell. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. We are going to continue our discussion now on the Democratic race. You told me you are preferring Elizabeth Warren. Yes. In my opinion, which has had... I will, I'm just going to say it. I've got a lot of political experience. I tend to call these things pretty accurately. Right now, it is a three-person race. It's only Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, or Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. Mm. Uh, if there is an outside chance, it's Pete Buttigieg. I can't say it. But <laughs> what, I think it's only one of those three. Um, so how has Elizabeth Warren won you over from Biden or Kamala? Um some of the stuff we already talked about being the most policy-oriented candidate, having very detailed plans, have a plan for that. Um, I also think that she's very focused on structural change, which I really appreciate, particularly in terms of how campaign laws work, which I think need a lot of reforming. I think that's particularly important to me because those issues affect a lot of other things. So right now, for example, this is more to do with lobbying, but if you're in Congress, you can buy stocks in the businesses that you're regulating or more aptly deregulating in a lot of those cases, right, so that those businesses can make more profit, which is a big problem, and she's for reforming that. Also, pharmaceutical companies, um, fossil fuel companies, uh, what's the other big one? that I'm leaving out. I can't... Uh, is she one of the ones that's kind of... There's a movement I found on the left that's trying to get into Apple, Amazon, Google. They're trying to regulate them. Are you thinking of them? Oh, that's true. And then also the NRA 
is the one that I had okay. in the back of my head spend more money than uh, the budget for the House and the Senate. So there's more money coming from corporations than coming from the uh, House and Senate budget that we have right now. And I think that gives them uh, a lot of power to manipulate politics in a way that they should Hold be able on. to. F- fact check to clarify. Are you talking about the budget for the federal government? Like the... F- the budget for Congress specifically, yeah. Well, uh, so the um, because that's like a four trillion dollar budget. Are you talking about the budget they used to run their own offices? The, I think that's what it is. So I just read it today. So I don't want to say something okay. that's inaccurate. But I believe it's the budget that they use to run their own offices that would is sense. around two billion. That makes and sense. corporations are spending that's about two point three billion. You're on. You're good. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that and, too. I thought you were saying uh, the uh, the four trillion dollar federal budget. That's what companies give to politicians. No, right, not like, that. that would wreck the economy. Wait, they can't be giving away four right. trillion dollars. Okay, I understand. I had I wanted to go back and get one of those. Uh, well, I'll start here. I am. I think we probably have a fundamental disagreement on that. I am not upset at all by big donors. I'm not upset at all by big companies, and here's why. We spend. More, more hundreds of billions on advertising for chips, soda, movies than we do on lobbying. And if it's, imp- if it's important that we know what soda and which Doritos to buy, it's, it's, it's a, it should be more important what policy is being put into place. And it's, it is by matters of degrees that we actually spend a lot less on politics than we do on advertising for other stuff. I actually think there should be more political spending. That's where I sit. Like people should be spending more money on that stuff. I think your issue is probably the. Uh, you think it gives them influence? Well, I mean, so we have the highest drug prices of any nation in the world, and really? a big part of that is because of the pharmaceutical lobby. And I think that we definitely need more interest in politics, but I don't think that that interest should be manifesting in the government working on behalf of the wealthy because they spend the most money on it. I think it should be working on behalf of the most people, regardless of how much money they have. The core question was why Warren is winning out over Kamala, and I think it's specificity for you that she is more specific on what it is that she wants wants to do. Is there any other... Is it anything Kamala has done? Is it not just Elizabeth Warren's positivity, but there's something about Kamala that has knocked her down in your mind? Yeah, so Kamala has a record as a prosecutor of being a part of an institutionally racist criminal justice system, of locking up a bunch of African Americans for petty drug crimes, of billing herself and acting as a tough-on-crime Democrat, um, which are things that I think are highly problematic in a country where almost 40% of the people in jail are black. It's a system that has not worked for them from the beginning, and that's one of the biggest issues, I think, facing the country right now. Well, I think you and I are about to agree on this, because uh, I think maybe the most shameful thing that happened in the first Democratic debate was Kamala Harris going after Joe Biden on busing. To the extent that I came on the show, and I felt so weird defending Joe Biden. Like, I was mm. out of nowhere... This Joe Biden is, does not deserve this criticism for his position at the time. What was your uh, reaction? How do you adjudicate the conflict between those two? Well, I think it's just a challenging situation where Kamala Harris is being both hypocritical and correct uh, about what she's criticizing Joe Biden of. Because I would say, I think that when you look throughout history, racist people have always hidden their racism 
behind couch language. So going all the way back to the Civil War, we see states' rights, you know, being the excuse for the Civil War, not slavery. And we see the Daughters of the Confederacy um, trying to re-educate schools with textbooks and setting up all these, you know, Confederate monuments in the 1950s, trying to say the Civil War was about states' rights, which actually more people in the country believe that now than they think it was about the primary cause was slavery. And so that's been a largely successful campaign. Um, you look at Ehrlichman, Nixon's advisor, who didn't have anything to lose because he was locked up in, uh, over the uh, Watergate controversy saying that the war on drugs was essentially a code for the war on black people, but you can't say the war on black people anymore, so now we call it the war on drugs. So Joe Biden saying, uh, well, I was against federal forced busing. If you're against federal forced busing, you were against desegregation, which is a big problem because if the states were going to desegregate themselves, you wouldn't have had to have Brown versus Board, right? Because it had to be forced for it to occur. And when there's been redlining and a lot of housing policies and lending policies that have consolidated uh, African-American communities into one specific location, they will go to the same school, which will be have lower resources unless if you bust them. I'm about to blow your mind. I've thought about this a ton. I... I'm pretty sure I'd be anti-busing. I also think I have some credibility for some sensitivity regarding racial reconciliation and racial conflict in the country. I've taken my own share of heat from my side when it comes to how I express thoughts on Michael Brown and Ferguson, how I've expressed things regarding Eric Garner. I've literally done a sermon in my own church about racial reconciliation. We are on the same page when it comes to how we've treated uh, African-American folks in drug crimes. I mean, I have, I think I have built some credibility to say what I'm about to say. Desegregation by forced busing, as in we are going to force integration, because there's a difference. I'm, I'm for desegregation, but there is a line between being for, for desegregation and for forced integration. The... The, the taking people from where they live and taking them to places where they don't live to force something that is good, integration is good, I would not have been for that. And I think I would have argued against it at the time with no racial animus, but mm -hmm. saying that's not fair to anybody. It's not fair to the little black kid. It's not fair to the little white kid. It's not fair to the parents. It's not fair to anybody. Stop doing the forced thing. And so I think Joe Biden's position is actually morally, technically correct. Thoughts on that? It's very interesting. I might surprise you a little bit and brag on the South, kind of, in this regard. I look forward to it. In terms of how uh, busing functioned. So I think the issue and the fundamental principle of Brown v. Board was that separate but equal is not equal, right? In a country Re where white people have consolidated certain amounts of power, I as agree. long as you have separate facilities for those two uh, groups, then the facilities for white people will always be better. So the question is, how do we harness the incentives of a majority white country to the benefit of of a group that's been discriminated against. And I think in schooling, which is a very fundamental aspect of how you're going to be successful, the only way to do that is put black kids in the same place as white kids so that the schools that black kids are at are going to improve. I would say that um, the North actually parading around its uh, anti-slavery record was much more resistant to busing in the end than the South. And in the South, what we saw is that busing was actually very successful in improving a lot of the school systems and getting black kids where it needed to be, even though it was unpopular um, among both communities in a lot of states. I'll give you that. In Joe Biden's state, busing was unpopular right. in the black community. 
But I do think it, it had to happen, and in the North where it didn't happen, we've seen more detrimental effects uh, on balance in terms of um, the African-American community not being able to send their kids to better schools. You mentioned you saw Kamala Harris as particularly hypocritical, even if Joe Biden, what you didn't like his position. How was Kamala Harris cri- hypocritical in her criticism? Yeah, I mean, I think that she has also done things in the past that fall under the umbrella of being a tough-on-crime candidate that have hurt the black community that also she's never really reckoned with. And I think also much more recently, um, I think that what Joe Biden needed to do as a candidate, and I think the biggest problem with issues like this is we don't know how to apologize. You know, just as people, we're bad at apologizing. Because, I mean— there are a lot of people, you know, Hillary Clinton used to be against gay marriage and has said things out against it before many of the Democrats did. And now, you know, if you're against gay marriage in the Democratic Party, you would get lambasted, which I personally think is fair. But um, so I think that you have to recognize that things are equally immoral across time, but the morality of people can't always be judged by the standards of today if they're willing to apologize. What Joe Biden should have just done is said, look. I made a mistake when it comes to race. It was in a different time, but that's not a complete excuse. I completely accept my wrongdoing for that, but look at my uh, record on race since then. I think that would have been fine. Two more things on this Democratic race. We'll move on to another topic. Uh, Let's go to Elizabeth Warren, because here's how I would challenge her. Because here I am. I'm the disinterested observer. I don't like who the Republicans are going to have, and I'm not going to like who the Democrats are going to have. And so I would challenge Elizabeth Warren with this. I'd love to get your response. I see all of your ideas for healthcare and pharmaceutical companies. I see all your stuff. All of it costs a ton. We're $20 trillion in debt. The debt's actually growing now under the, pres- under the current president like crazy. How on earth do you think you're going to pay for all this stuff? So uh, that's how I would challenge Warren. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, we have to raise taxes a lot is one of the biggest things. Okay. I think that maybe we can agree to a certain extent, that the highest marginal tax bracket should not be $500,000. You know, maybe we shouldn't be taxing people with incomes above uh, $10 million a year, 70% of that income, but maybe we should be taxing them more than we're taxing the people at $500,000. So uh, I do think that 70% for incomes above $10 million is fair. That's the point that's optimal on the Laffer curve where you optimize government revenue. Because at a certain point, if you tax too much, then there's you do start hurting, hurting innovation, and then that messes up government revenue. Um, um, we counting income, in your opinion, uh, or in a plan that you would put together. There's a difference between how income is taxed and how investment income is taxed. So I'm an investor in Netflix, Facebook, Uber, Lyft. I'm an investor in uh, NVIDIA. They're one of the big cloud companies. And I make some money off of those investments. And if I sell some of those shares, that is taxed differently than my income from North Greenville University. So when you say $10 million, do you mean income from your job or income from investments? I think that that would be income taken as a whole. I would also say that to justify the raising of taxes, I, I listened to some of your stuff on healthcare. It is important to recognize that we have the most expensive healthcare system per capita out of the OEDC countries. Mm-hmm. We have the most expensive drug prices. A lot of that is because when you have overhead divided amongst a bunch of different private insurance companies, it increases a lot. So Canada, with their socialized medicine, their overhead with the government is about 12% to administrative costs, whereas it's 25% here. Also, 50 
15% of private insurer's budget goes to advertising, um, and you don't have advertising if you're, it's a single-payer system. So in some ways, you do end up saving Americans money. It's just that they're being forced to spend it on health care, whereas maybe they would have spent it on something else. Um, but the system as a whole would most likely be a lot cheaper. One of the things you'll never get from me is a defense of the American health care system. Our system's terrible. It's backward. I just find the British system, the Canadian system, and all the other European systems to be worse. There mm. are no good healthcare systems. I look across the world. I think the best one I came across was either South Korea or Japan. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty good. Maybe it was Singapore. It was an Asian country. Mm. And I thought, that's how I would like to do it. That's as close as I can get. Uh, but no, I'm, you're not going to get any defense from me of how America does it. But I would respond there. Uh, so, yeah, we have more overhead because of advertising. We have more uh, overhead because of administrative things. And one of the ways in which we could deal away with some of the administrative stuff is diminishing the amount of uh, some of the regulation um, that we have <laughs> in, in that industry. But second, um, we do pay a premium here. We pay a premium because we create all the stuff. And so I'll give you a quick one quick illustration. You may not remember because you're younger than I am. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not minimizing your age. I'm just making fun of me for being old. <laughs> uh, when 50-inch flat-screen televisions came out, they were 10 grand. You and I could go get a flat screen right now at Walmart in Traveler's Rest. That's the closest one we have to us. Probably for 300 bucks, 400 bucks maybe. And that was because we paid the premium. We, our companies made them. Our companies created them. And rich people bought them first. And those companies made their money back on their innovation. And then it became available to the mass of all of us. We can all go get 50-inch 50, 50 flat screens. We're going to pay the premium because we're the ones that invented that drug. We're, we're the ones that invented that medical procedure. And so the rest of the world gets to benefit because Americans pay more. That's how. That's what. That's one of the issues of our system is we we innovate everything. Just, just any response to that? So I think that that could be partially true. I would like. I think that there's an assumption as Americans that we're always the best innovators. I would like to see what the data is on that. I'm not very familiar with that, but I would say that I know in there are some specific ways in which the system right now discourages innovation. I think that one of those is that pharmaceutical companies will always have an incentive to prioritize medicines that have to be ongoing, which means that they're not going to, uh, they don't have a lot of research to, uh, they don't have a lot of incentivization to research cures sure. or things that prevent diseases That's in the true. first place. So those incentives are askew. Also, right Right now, what they're doing is they'll basically just change drugs slightly in ways that don't make them any better, but allow them to renew a patent on that drug, allow them to be the exclusive seller of that drug, and continue to offer outrageous prices that result in things like us having an insulin black market and people dying because they can't get access to insulin. So those things you're going to find a friend in me on uh, trying to punish some of those practices. Uh, that is how actually textbook companies do the same thing, by the way, college textbook companies. They change a couple pages, right. and then they call it a new edition and I can keep selling their exorbitant prices. Uh, so I, under, I'm just, I am agreeing with you that part of the overhead is ads and administrative things. But one big part of it is just being being the innovator. So this is something I am an expert on. If you do get in, if you want to go do the work, um, Israel for some reason that is a small population of people, mm -hmm. but they invent a lot of medical stuff, medical supplies and and drugs, and we do. That's the people places in the world. Um, even if you just do it from a, a market cap. Uh, the companies with the with the most resources. I'm actually an investor in one of them uh, through my Robinhood app that make drugs, and it's just. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it is that we we pay a premium because we create so much stuff. I have to get back to the Democratic primary. One last question on that one. 
So you're leaning towards Elizabeth Warren is who you who you desire. My big skepticism of her is she has a bunch of plans that she's going to have to tax the middle class for. I don't think you can tax rich people enough. You have to tax me to make this stuff happen. Be, be Nostradamus for a minute, man. Uh, it's it's January. We just had the Iowa caucuses. February's New Hampshire. I think late February's South Carolina. <sighs> who wins it, and how early will they win it in the process? Yeah. I think that's very difficult to say. It is. <laughs> As of right now, in terms of who beats Trump, which is the most important thing to voters, it does look like Joe Biden has the best chance of that for the reason that Wisconsin and other Rust Belt states seem to be the states that the election is going to come down to. How are the Democrats going to win back the white working class voters that Obama had um, to win and that Trump had in the last election? I would say, though, that common wisdom as well was that Mitt Romney need, uh, did not win the election because he failed to get uh, the Latino vote, votes from other people of color, and that a future Republican president was going to learn, have to know how to shift to the future. Trump did the opposite of that yep. and mobilized the you know white base that's further to the right. I do think it's possible, and I would hope, that a candidate like Elizabeth Warren could you know go on more of the mobilization strategy than win back the voter strategy, but... I think that Joe Biden would be the best to beat Trump if I had to make a prediction. And since that's important to voters, maybe he'll win the primary. We'll see. Me, me too. If you were asking me who can actually uh, win a general election, I actually think Joe Biden wins it possibly easily. Uh, it will be hard for Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren to do. Um, it's funny. You have some. You definitely have some political knowledge here I didn't know you had. Um it used to be um, it was they weren't mobilization elections. They were middle ground elections. It was um, who can you convince? Right. You know who changed that? It was Karl Rove. You were not, mm-hmm. you might not have been born in '04. Were you born? Yeah. You yeah. were alive. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Of course you were. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, so I'm gonna tell you a little story, and for the listeners, um, Karl Rove was really the first one that came along for George W. Bush, and said, you know, we don't actually have to win the middle. There's a bunch of voters out there that just don't vote. And if we can fire them up, we can actually lose the middle and still win. And so Karl Rove went about the business of putting marriage amendments on the ballot to make marriage between one man and one woman on the ballot in Florida, in Ohio, in very strategic states. And so a bunch of people showed up to vote for marriage, and while they were there, they voted for George W. Bush. That's how he won election, the re-election 2004. And then I think Obama did the same thing in 2012. He said, I don't need the middle. I'm going to fire up my base. I'm going to mobilize. And that's what you're thinking Elizabeth Warren could do, but Joe Biden could actually win the middle. we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to switch to this. The Squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ari, uh, I forgot one of their names, uh, Ilhan Omar, and then there's uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. I got there. Good job, Corey. And their feud with the president. We're going to talk about that, maybe the Mueller hearing, and universal basic income. All of that when we return for the rest of the four-year anniversary edition of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. Thanks for tuning in wherever you listen. It is always highly appreciated when you do. If you would also be so kind, find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Look for me, Corey Truax. It's always fun. I have lots of good content for you over there. And we'd love for you to follow along. Look for me, Corey Truax. We welcome back to the show now Mr. Nathan McDowell. Hello there, sir. Glad to be here. Are you on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook? I am on Facebook but, only. But not Twitter. You're a kid, man. You're supposed to yeah. be. You're not a kid. I'm a kid. <laughs> but you're a young man. You're supposed to be on all of them. 
Well, yeah. Why not? Uh, I just, I'm not crazy about social media. Wow. Seems like a lot of stress. I, I do wonder sometimes, as a social psychologist, or if, uh, as an aspiring social psychologist, I mean, didn't mean to be presumptuous. There, that's <laughs> what I want to do. Yes. Um, do I need to be on social media to have my finger on the pulse of what people are doing? But for now, I think I'm healthier and happier if I stay do away from it. Do you Snapchat? Not really. You're no, I Facebook. have it, but I really just got it to Snapchat my girlfriend. That's about so, it. <laughs> so really quick um, on why I don't think social scientists need to be doing uh, Facebook. One of the things that Facebook has made bad, um, I think this is a good discussion for us. They Their design is to just keep you on their site. That's what they want. And so the Facebook algorithm is created to make you see more of what you want to see. And so I, I've seen the Facebook feeds of some of, my, some of my friends who are big Trump people. And the feed is just full of all the most positive Trump stuff you've ever seen. And then I've seen some of my anti-Trump people. And the feed is just full of all the anti-Trump stuff. Because Facebook only wants one thing. Stay on this app. Stay on this site and keep scrolling. And so it doesn't teach you anything. It never challenges you. And you'll never know the pulse. All you'll know is your pulse. What do you want to see? And it's one of the reasons social media has made us all worse. Uh, I, I actually, I love social media. It's part of what I do, but it has made us dumber because it only feeds you stuff you want to see. All right, here we go. Um, this, we've called these groups the squad. Uh, our, I can't remember all their names. Um, and they had a quick little feud with uh, the president of the United States here recently. Um, if anyone missed it, the president said of those four co- congresswomen, Democratic congressmen, very left-wingers, uh, tweeted they should go back to their own country. Problem is, this is their country, and so they can't go anywhere, uh, and then they fired back. So just your rundown or your thoughts on the conflict between them. Yeah, I think first, I take a lot of issue with this idea that if you're in America, you can't criticize it. You know, I I think that even if, let's say they were all from another country, so what? They have every right to come here to think it's better than their previous options and still say it has a lot of problems. I don't think it's fascism because I don't want to go too far. But I do think that it's some, I think we have, I think patriotism can start to have small flavors of fascism if we're not careful. And I think that that's one of those. I think that we have a responsibility as a populist to constantly be criticizing our government, to constantly be calling out the corrupting influence of power. And I think this idea that regardless of whether or not you think their criticisms are true, that simply because they're criticizing the government, therefore they're anti-American, I think that's a should be a very American thing that we're all doing. Well, what is Make America Great Again except a criticism of America? That's what that is. That is saying America is not great right now. I want to make it great again. So I would have, I said this on the show last week, a little smart aleck, back in 2015 and 16 when you were telling us the country's garbage, why don't you go? Why don't you get out, sir, if, you, if the country's so bad? So yeah, it was immoral language that he used there. Here's my problem, man. I can find nothing to admire about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna mm, Presley, mm. Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. Like in a fight between them and Trump, I hope they both lose mm. somehow or another. Do you are are you uh, as annoyed or annoyed by these four ladies, or do you admire them? 
I don't love them. I wouldn't say I have nothing to admire. I think that what I do admire about them is that they have not been made cynical by the political system and that they do want to shake things up, specifically in terms of campaign finance reform, and I think that's a good thing. I think the bad thing is that they're very naive and idealistic, the other side of that coin. Um, with Trump, though, what's hard for me is that I can't imagine that there's anything other than racial animus behind that tweet. You know, if he's hmm. misidentifying people of color from being from other countries, telling them to get out, and also just that we criticize immigrants who are, you know, usually not white all the time and say, get out if you don't like our country. But as you pointed out, everyone criticizes our country. Just on the right, it's, oh, uh, we're... Uh, just overwhelmed with this PC culture that's destroying right. us. We're overwhelmed with a victimhood culture and a welfare state that just people think they're entitled to everything and yeah. it's horrible and they're complaining all the time about the mainstream media, about our governmental institutions and the deep state and corruption. Not everyone, but you know, yes. everyone complains. But when it's people of color complaining about how they've discriminated against, suddenly, well, if you don't like our country, get out of here. And I do think that's at least xenophobic and probably racist as well. Thank you for getting the word. Because I, uh, I was about to push back on you a little bit with, I can't remember the word for being fearful of or anti just the other, but it's xenophobic. So I, I don't I don't know if the president has racial animus. I, I'll admit, I sort of doubt it. I think it's hard to grow up in New York City and have that kind of racial animus. But it is, on its face, that is xenophobic. By definition, go back to your home country. That is obviously at least xenophobic or adjacent to racism. Because I think right. I think I know the president well enough to know this. His only ethic is, are you nice to me or not? That's, that's how he decides things. He li if you like him, he likes you. If you dislike him, he dislikes you. And so I think he just, have, just as easily would have said that about Adam Schiff. The, he calls him mm -hmm. pencil neck. I think he could have just as easily done that because his only ethic is, are you nice to me? That's how I saw it. I would say, I think we have different definitions of racism. Okay. Because I think the leftist definition of racism is any time when you're treating a person of color in a more negative way because of their skin color. Okay. I don't think that Trump thinks in his mind that black people are inferior or that black people shouldn't have the same opportunities. I, I think very few people think that in their mind in today's day and age. But I also think that for me, what racism is, is I think he was a lot more quickly to tell those women to get out of our country and be incorrect because they weren't white. And his idea of what an American is, is subliminally a white person. And so I definitely think that that affected that interaction. Okay, that's fair. Um, I think that's part of the, a generational thing, too. Um, it, I think, as I said, it's hard to grow up in New York City and have racial animus because it's such a diverse place even when he was growing up. But there is an era of time where I think that kind of language would have permeated, and he comes from that era. He comes from the area where you would say things like that. Um, so you did call them idealistic. I'm glad you did that because what I don't want to go back to the Green New Deal, but it's, it seems like every, almost all the plans that they w would put out, it, they're just not realistic. It's, it is not a practical way to go about governance. And I think I think if Democrats lose in 2020, I think it's partly those four women's fault uh, because mm -hmm. you, you get to a, a middle-of-the-road voter in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and, and you're forcing them to pick between Trump and one of those four. I think they pick Trump. I think they do every, every time. 
I definitely think since Trump, the Democratic Party has swung left, which is dangerous and does seem to be non-strategic, given the the main voters, the, the white working class voters that we need to win back. So that'll be very interesting. There are a lot of people that have hypothesized that that was Trump's plan. You know, he wants more and more people to identify the squad <laughs> with the Democratic Party. Um, yeah, I mean, who knows? But I definitely think there is a danger uh, in the Democratic Party being identified with these very high profile, but very new individuals who are, yeah, trying to shake things up. These... Uh, you know, if I would have been in the Trump administration, and thank God I'm not, I would have said something like that. Like, we need to find a way to make uh, Ayanna Presley the. I, I would have done it this way. That that um that week she had been at Netroots. You know, Netroots. It's a big. It's it's probably the biggest liberal conference there is. It's usually in Vegas. It's called Netroots, and she was on stage and said. Um, we need to stop having brown faces that aren't brown voices. We need to stop having black faces that are not black voices. We need to stop having LGBT faces that are not LGBT voices. And she goes down this long list. And it made it sound like, unless you agree with me on politics, you're not adequately black, brown, or LGBT. We'll make her the star. Because that is a divisive thing to say. That's a... I don't think he's smart enough to do it on purpose, but that's what he did. And if someone like Elizabeth Warren or a Kamala Harris or Joe Biden can't say, no, no, look at me, look at me, I'm normal, they're crazy, I'm normal, then they're going to have trouble in, in 2020. Um, if I, I've said to both sides, strategically, both sides should just point at the other and stop talking about anything else. Mm. Just point, he's crazy, look at him, he, he causes all kinds of strife, and he just needs to look back at him and say, but they're crazy, and they're going to ruin the economy or something. Um, I have one more question for you on politics. It's inarguable that the economy is awesome. How are folks on the left planning to deal with that in an election? Because if President Trump needs to get on stage and say, look at the economy, it's doing quite well, how, you, how do you respond to it? Yeah, well, so I, in the spirit of Elizabeth Warren, appreciated how she responded. I think one is, what are the metrics by which we measure the economy? Our GDP has always been through the roof. I mean, we, we're, we're, the, we're number one in GDP. But when you look at something, for example, like wages, wages have been stagnating for a long time, yeah. which could suggest that there's a problem in how the capitalistic system is currently structured, when for most people, wages are not keeping up with inflation. I think that's a big problem. I think it's also important to recognize that Trump's growth numbers aren't better than Obama's. We're just continuing to be on the rise. So you have to, in some ways, look at the rate of change, not just the change. And the rate of change has continued at about the same rate. You can also question the extent to which they're a result of Obama-era policies taking effect versus Trump policies having a very immediate effect. I think that that can be complicated to disentangle at times. So you mean... Are you comparing Obama's last two years to Trump's first two? Well, I think just that it's difficult to say the economy is very wide-ranging and complex, and it's difficult to directly connect Trump's policies with the economic change we're seeing. I don't think it's enough to say, well, the economy's doing good and Trump's in office, therefore it's because of him. I do think that there is a little more work that would need to be, be done there. So are, are we in agreement that I'm not a Trump guy? I'm about to yes. sound like one. I just want to clarify that I, I'm not a Trump guy. But the ideas that he imported, because I don't think he has these ideas. Mm -hmm. He's a tariff. Mm -hmm. Consider how much things better would be without this dumb tariff. Right, right. right? This, is, uh, this is not, I, these are not ideas he's held 
closely in his whole life. But the people he brought into that administration in the deregulative state, particularly the EPA, and, and, the, and the deregulation we put on all kinds of different sectors through them, particularly energy, these have been some of the drivers of, of the economic growth. And so uh, if I am a Trump person, I am going to argue back to a Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, it is these ideas that have led to the accelerated growth. And you are particularly saying, I want to change what we're doing. Well, right. what we're doing is obviously working, so you don't want to change it. That's the argument that I would make. I had one more thought there, and I think it was, uh, I mean, I, yeah, the, the economy economy generally to me for them is going to be problematic because they're all going to want to raise taxes. Um, and if, if they're honest about it, they're all going to say it. Bernie was honest enough to say it would be on middle class people. I, my point here is, I think talking about the economy is going to be troublesome for them because right. it's going really well right now. Oh, I, had to, I remembered it. Um, I have a pretty uh, well put together reason as to why wages have stagnated so terribly. Mm. It's because all of the money that would be otherwise going to wages is going to healthcare premiums. So companies mm. are actually paying us more, but it's just because they're paying so much more in insurance. And so as premiums continue to skyrocket, it's sucking up our raises. What would be going in our pockets is actually going to our health care. And so we do have to, if you want to raise wages, you actually have to fix the health care market. This is what's going on there. Have you heard that theory before? I have. I don't doubt that that could be a component of it. I do also think that when um, the tax cuts happened and the biggest tax cut was for corporations, most of that money went to uh, share buybacks. You know, so buying yeah, back stocks. And so I think that that's a part of it. I think just trying to increase profit. And if you're not forced to raise wages as a company, I mean, in a lot of cases, you won't because you're going to do whatever's most profitable for you. So I, I think that that is uh, another component of it. I would agree with you uh, previously what you said about the deregulation helping the economy. I don't think the tax cuts necessarily help the economy. I mean, I do think tax cuts on corporations will help corporations grow. Sure. Is it helping other people? I would say with the deregulation, sure. I mean, if we're making a lot of money on fossil fuels, that'll always help us. So the question just is, do you believe that climate change is an imminent problem? Because then it's not worth the cost, right? Sure, you're getting growth, but you're wondering what the cost of the growth is. We only have 30 seconds left, so let me ask you this. Uh, for those listening live on Christian Talk uh, 92.9 FM, are you cool with doing some bonus stuff on the Mueller hearing and universal basic income? Yes. I think I actually want to talk global warming now that you talked about it as well. Those on the podcast, just stay tuned uh, after the, the close here. We'll come back and do a little bonus content on those three topics. If Again, if you're listening live, just go find the Corey Act show. I'll be gl glad for you to do that. It's also the fourth anniversary of the show. So you need to go find it, subscribe to the podcast, review it wherever you find it. Nathan, thanks for coming in and doing the show. Yeah, thanks we'll so be much. back with another new edition of the show next week. And then if you would also, oh yeah, CoreyTrueX.com, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Find me everywhere you can. Tell somebody about the show. I am grateful for it. Until next time, everybody. Peace and love. All right, welcome to the bonus edition of here, the fourth anniversary episode of the Corey Act Show. We welcome back Nathan McDowell. Hi there. Hey. When, before we left the show, you're talking about the cost of uh, deregulation on energy and whether climate change is, is, is the problem there. I wonder, I'm going to give you my opinion on climate change. I, have I done this before? I don't think so. I don't think I have. Um, and then I want uh, to get your response, because I'm just, you're a smart guy, I'm interested in your opinion. I totally accept the findings that the Earth has warmed, is it uh, like like 0 0.8, 0 0.9 degrees over the last twenty years or yeah. something, something like that? Um, I totally accept that because it's math, so I right. accept it because sure. numbers are numbers. Uh, two, I accept that humans 
have played somewhere between 30% and 60% of the role. I don't know how much of a role. Maybe more than half, maybe less than half. But human activity, of course, again, to me that just feels like math. Well, yeah, we're here. There's like 7 billion of us. I would imagine we affect the climate in some way. Right. So I accept the number. I accept we have some role. Three, I don't accept the catastrophe. Because primarily this, we've like we're really smart, and we come up with ways to hold back seawalls, like we build them, and we came up with ways to like grow food differently, and then we we came up with genetically modified seeds, and so yeah, I think bad stuff could happen, and we're gonna like engineer the heck out of it, and science mm. the heck out of it, and we're gonna beat it. That's where I stand on global warming. So. Just for the people who, who don't agree with a lot of those things that okay. you said, I do want to clear up a couple misconceptions. One is that volcanoes produce more carbon than humans. That's not true. Now, it is true that humans only produce 3% of the carbon in the atmosphere. But the issue with looking at it that way is that nature has a, a cycle in which it produces carbon and it absorbs carbon. Plants absorb carbon. Uh, the ocean absorbs some carbon, and also carbon is constantly being produced. And that's a cycle that's pretty well self-regulated. Humans produce almost all of the additional carbon in the atmosphere. And that's where the confusion comes in a lot about, well, are humans causing it or not? We cause only 3% of the carbon that's being emitted, but we cause almost all of the extra because nature has adapted to handle it, it on its own. Now, in terms of the catastrophe that it causes, I think that we have to look at the space between the decimation of the entire human species and just some minor problems with maybe a couple of more hurricanes than usual. Because I think that especially people with social and economic mobility, they will always find a way. I mean, you can move to a place up north, you know, and we do expect to see migration. I think the key issue is for like agrarian uh, agrarian countries, you know, countries where almost their entire economy is based on agriculture, you can't really adapt if your crops are on fire because the, uh, of, of global warming increasing. If you're poor and you can't move in the U.S., you, can't, you won't be able to get to a place where the impacts of climate change will not affect you. So I think that potentially we can find ways to fix um, ocean acidification and all these different things that are causing issues like the uh, seafood industry to mess up but I think that it's always going to hurt people with the lowest social mobility, and they're the ones who are least responsible for climate change. It's rich corporations who will be able to damage those poor communities and then move, and I think that's one of the worst parts about it. We're in agreement that it is the third, uh, what do we call that now, the developing world, that's yeah. what we're supposed to say, um, the global south, like those are the folks that will suffer the most. I think here's where I sit. When I've heard the preventative measures and how expensive they are and I think about the responsive measures and how expensive they are I just like the responsive measures more so if we're talking about needing to uh, use some taxpayer money and uh, some UN funds to make uh, to make the agrarian places what, oh, what is the word? When you're, resilient. To make them resilient mm, against mm, the effects mm, mm, of climate change. It is less damaging than the economic hit you take for uh, what you do to the energy sector in the Western world and, to, and in the first mm, world. Mm. And so what, I'm almost at this spot. Let's say everything you're right about global warming is true. 
well, guys, I, I, don't, I don't even know if we can stop it. So I would rather respond to it instead of trying to prevent, prevent it. Let's get to Miami right now and decide how big's this seawall got to be. Let's build that sucker. Uh, let's go ahead and get to my home country, the Ivory Coast, right now. What do we got to do to make sure we can still grow rice here? Well, let's do that. And so uh, I, don't, I don't think that makes me a denier. It makes me a person who goes, I think all of your ideas on how to prevent it suck and that the better ideas are how to respond to it once it happens. Thoughts? Any? Yeah, I mean, just that I think people with the least political capital, as I said, I don't know if that'll happen. I don't, I don't think it will. I, I, and I also think that, you know, then you just get into a pragmatic discussion about the cost and should we subsidize green energy versus building a massive wall around Florida? I mean, I haven't crunched the numbers <laughs> on that specifically, but I would imagine that the best thing to do would be to create a new sector in green energy that's going to provide jobs, have people employed and researching into that topic, and also just be more sustainable in the long term because at some point, it's going to affect everyone. If we don't stop temperatures from rising, there is a point at which we cannot cope. We do have to stop at some point, and I think the sooner we can prevent it from happening, the better, because I would say that these these adaptive measures can only last for so long until we stop increasing the amount of carbon that, in the atmosphere. That was the term, adaptive. I, I was using responsive. My, my global warming stance is adapt to it, don't prevent it. Okay, uh, but you eventually you say you run to some period in, in, in the future where we're out of adaptations, and you just, you have to do something to prevent. And at some level, I don't know, man. Humankind has been so inventive and has been so resilient. I am counting on, my, uh, for example, I'm taking my 15-year-old nephew tomorrow to get his permit. I wonder if in 10 years he's going to drive it all. And if I wonder by the time he's my age, if there will even be in the United States, in the Western world, if there's going to be gas-powered cars someone's going to get that battery, man. It might not be Elon Musk. It might not be Tesla. Someone's going to do it. Someone's going to get that battery. Someone's going to find a way to charge it with solar. Like, I just believe... I find this to be so weird sometimes. I'm the Christian religious dude. I'm the conservative. And I feel like I have more faith in science and engineering mm-hmm. than the secularists do. Because I'm looking at the world with its problems and I go, you know who's going to solve that? The engineers and the scientists. They're going to solve it. They're going to figure it out. They're going to figure out how we're going to do this. And they're looking at me like, no, we're all going to die. It's like, no, I think we're going to solve it. Like, I have, I don't know, man. I have faith in smart people. We're going to figure this out. I have two responses to that. Please. The first one is that it only takes one event. So the, the geological era that they say we're living in these days is the Anthropocene, you know, and it only took one extinction event for dinosaurs to stop existing. You know, it only took one extinction event for these other species to stop existing. Um, so I would say that maybe we'll figure it out. Maybe we won't. It only takes one time to catastrophically affect the human species in such a way to where we can't recover from it. This is the one time that we're not going to do it. It's a possibility. I I see what you're saying. So if it had happened, you know, we wouldn't be here anymore, which I think is a part of it. Um, I interrupted your second point. So, yeah, the second thing that I would say in response to that is that they have engineered the solutions, and those are the solutions that leftists are arguing for, but we're refusing to adopt, you know, so I would say like having a carbon tax is one of those solutions that economists have come up with, but we are not accepting it. And if we come up with solutions, but only accept them if they're economically viable, I think that could be a big problem. I have two thoughts on that. I did not <laughs> think we would talk about this with any, like, um, I didn't think there was enough content here to actually have this conversation. Well, so carbon, carbon tax is going to hurt an economy. And when you hurt an economy, you hurt people. 
So people are going to hurt because of that. Um, and maybe that discussion then is, will hurt now so you can hurt less later. But if we do carbon tax, you are going to hurt someone. Uh, and then the other. Oh, yeah. I saw this from Coast. Nope, not Coastal Carolina. Eastern Carolina University now has a program directly related to what I've just said. Um, I can't remember what they called it. It, was, it wasn't like beach engineering, but it's like coastal something or other. And that's actually what they're studying. They're studying, um, we're going to accept that climate change is going to happen. How do we handle it? How do we build things on the coasts to, uh, to, to be uh, adaptive to it? And so, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. But um, that, that was interesting. I didn't think we were going to have that discussion. Well done, sir. Um, any other thoughts on global warming before we go on to two other things? Just on the carbon tax, I would say the reason economists came up with that is that it does allocate the burden on the people who are producing carbon and who are causing the climate change. That's the idea. And it, it, it's a two-part policy for the smart people who are talking about it. There's a carbon tax and there's also a carbon dividend because some of the cost the corporation will incur some of the cost the consumer will incur in raised prices. And so that does have to be compensated for by a carbon dividend. But when done correctly with the right numbers, I would say it does shift the cost where it's supposed to, which is on the corporations producing carbon. Related at least a little bit to this, uh, because we're talking about the future and we're talking about economic systems. I recently did a an inter- excuse me an episode on universal basic income, and I surprised myself by landing on the idea that if you're going to have a welfare state, if it's going to exist, because I'd rather just not exist, but if you're going to have right. one, that universal basic income is the more logical, rational, efficient way to do it than to have temporary assistance for needy families, SNAP, SCHIP, uh, Medicaid, uh, there's more, there's a bunch more, uh, Section 8 housing, yeah. all that. Uh, so, Did you say TANF? I don't know. Yes, it's, okay, uh, temporary yeah. assistance of new, oh, yeah, families is, um, is, TA, is TA, TANF. Uh, so that's where I landed, and I surprised myself because I'm super anti-government giving anyone anything ever. So your universal basic income thoughts. Yeah, so it's a fascinating idea, um, and I don't have strong feelings about it. I mean, the question basically is, if we're going to have a welfare state, do we give it uh, do we give people certain paternalistic nudges? Do we make sure they're using that money for certain things? So with SNAP, make sure they're using it just to buy food um, with and have welfare be means-tested so only people you know who meet certain requirements get welfare? Or uh, do, we just, do you just get it? I also think it's important to recognize that there's no fundamental difference between a highly redistributive welfare state with no strings attached and a universal basic income, right? So if I'm giving... $12,000 to every poor person who would get welfare. And then I'm also giving $12,000 to middle class and richer people, but then taxing them to pay for it. That's the same as not giving the middle class or upper class uh, any money at all and only giving just like microfinancing loans or just giving that money straight to poor people which becomes a branding thing, which I think is fascinating. So do we just straight give money to only poor people and tax the middle class and the upper class for it? Or do we tax the middle class and the upper class more, but then give them some money back? And so the only fundamental difference between that that I've heard would be branding. It's the idea that you as an American citizen get to have a universal basic income because we believe that everyone has a right to at least this standard of living, which they say would have more buy-in. Um, I'm unclear if that would be the case. Uh, so, to pay for... I'm going to crunch some numbers on this. And, you know, you studied math for a while, so if I'm wrong, that's fine. If you go back and look at it. The actual proposal from 
Yang. Thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah, the Democratic guy. That it's it costs more than our current welfare system, but only a little. And so if it um, if his numbers are right, Andrew Yang, who's running for president, um, then yeah, old, some folks are going to get taxed more. But it does seem like a smaller group. Uh, so actually, one of the reasons it attracts me is the family who has two people working. They're both making forty grand. It's an eighty grand household. That that eighty grand household now becomes not ninety two, but one hundred and four. So how much you're making now? Because yeah, mm, yeah. thanks. I'm doing math in my head, uh, and so that household could then, if they wanted, become a forty plus twelve is fifty two. And mom stay home with the kids or whatever. Like, I think yeah, uh, there's some people that would have to get taxed more, and therefore they're not getting the benefit of it. Uh, but there is something healthier to me about and almost dignifying, because uh, I don't know, man. You you've heard folks resent people on food stamps you've you've heard the resentful uh, words about people that they don't work and they're you're on the government money well when it becomes a social thing that everybody has i think we can eliminate i hope we can eliminate some of the social problems we have with each other that's that's at least my desire um any more thoughts on that before we do muller one thing that i think is important to recognize about welfare now is especially under um temporary assistance for needy families a lot of the money doesn't go to what people think it goes to so um about 25 percent of it i believe goes to cash assistance what people traditionally think of as welfare um the rest of it goes to child care up to 50 percent and then states use it for all sorts of things on college scholarships that go to everyone on relationship counseling classes some of it goes to crisis pregnancy centers and so i think there's this idea of this burgeoning welfare state and you look at the numbers and you look at how much we're spending but it's also important to recognize that since bill clinton passed the welfare reform act that that money has gone to all sorts of things crisis pregnancy centers relationship countings that have nothing to do with welfare that are being billed as welfare and being used to attack poor people as lazy which i do think is a very problematic aspect of the current system yeah i don't like that part at all um there for the most part i i don't have any data on this this is just instinct that the people getting benefits from the government i don't resent them there's a there's a thing that to me that says there's there's a natural inclination to want to take care of yourself and I suspect that most of the folks on these things don't want to be, and they're they're looking for a way out. I'm sure I'm wrong about some. There's some number that it is a state of being, but uh, I'm, I'm not I'm never I'm not resentful of folks getting benefits. I think we do it poorly. I think it's what you just said. We just we don't do a great job of it in our in our system. Okay. Um. Last thing, Mueller went to the uh, went to Congress House something or other committee. Yeah. And, and at least I could tell nothing happened. Nothing new happened. Is that was that your take as well? Yes. Um, I mean, Mueller said he was going to stick to the confines of the report. The Justice Department made him actually promise that he would not go beyond the boundaries of the report in his comments. I didn't know. Okay. And also that he could not read his report aloud, which meant that the Democrats couldn't even get the sound bites of him reading his own report and use that as some uh, political fodder. later. So it was incredibly boring, I would say, <laughs> except for the fact that Republicans used this as an opportunity to undermine the Mueller investigation as a whole and try to point out instances of bias in it, which I would say is the most significant thing that happened. And if that was the most significant thing that happened, then nothing nothing really significant happened. Uh, I understand why they called him up there to do his thing, um, but 
I think what happened was what I expected. I expected kind of a nothingness. I, you've, you've, we've talked about it before. I've been very skeptical of this probe from the beginning. I think I even said to you that I considered the Russia stuff to be the left's version of Obama's uh, born in Kenya stuff. I mm. equated the two, and maybe that's not fair, but I did equate the two because from the moment of Obama was born in Kenya, it's like, stop, please. And then I also with, he colluded with Russia. I also went, no, I don't like either one of these people, but I don't think either one of them colluded or did anything wrong. Uh, so that's done, right, to you? Like, we're done. No more stuff with Mueller. It's over. Well, my perspective on it is this. I think that there are some significant things with Russia that are overlooked. For example, numerous people in his campaign did meet with Russia. They received information from Russia. They knew that Russia was going to use WikiLeaks after they hacked into the DNC to release all Hillary's emails and looked fondly upon that. I think Paul Manafort mentioned Trump meeting with Russia, um, and Trump said responded favorably. No, he didn't actually meet with Russia. But I do think that he has flirted with conspiring with Russia in some ways that are concerning. I, I would say, but, you know, the the Mueller report found that he didn't conspire. I would say in terms of obstruction of justice, when he told his lawyer, Don McGahn, to fire Mueller, and then he refused, and then told Don McGahn to lie about Trump asking him to fire Mueller, I do think that constitutes obstruction of justice, trying to stop an investigation against yourself and then trying to cover it up afterwards that you tried to stop it. Um, but my uh, my view on it is... So what if you impeach him? It doesn't really matter. If anything, I think that it might stoke the anti-establishment sentiment that got him elected in the first place. Oh. And I would be concerned about the political effects of it, even if I do think he did technically obstruct justice. The public support's not there. It's been boring. You know, people are tired of it. I think you just gotta gotta let it go. All right, last thing for me. Uh, you're about to start senior year? And you're, uh, then your you're plan is to go into grad school, correct? That is the plan. Fantastic. Uh, well, man, this is your fourth time on. I, gra- I appreciate you doing this. Yeah. I'm always grateful. And once the uh, semester is over, like maybe December or something, we should get back together because that will be one month before the first votes are taken. And uh, we'll, get, we'll check back in with our, our resident left-winger here on the Corey <laughs> Truax Show. Uh, so thanks for coming in and doing it. Yeah, appreciate sounds it. great. Uh, thanks for listening to the bonus edition here on all the bonus content. I'm just going to ask you to do it one more time because I need you to, guys. If I'm going to be a broadcaster when I grow up, I need your help. Uh, so share the show. Tell someone about it. You know you want to because it's lots of fun. And just tell anybody about the Corey Truax Show. Find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.